Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist, and welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast. I'm coming to you, as always, from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And you know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. And I'd like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing, meaningful work. I call them brilliant, but not famous. And well, the not famous part is is irony because they're all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and in the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name. So they really are brilliant and famous uh, to me uh, and really committed to their work. So I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work that they're doing. And I also believe in serendipity. So I hope that some positive things come from sharing their stories with all of you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to, uh, to have on my show uh, Hong Tang, and uh, Hong is the uh, co-lead for the Pan-Asian Network uh, Health Equity Initiative Team, uh, and also Executive Product Specialist in Immuno-Oncology at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And Hong got her Bachelor of Arts uh, from the University of Maryland, uh, Baltimore County, and has won many awards during her 24 years of BMS. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show, Hong. Thank you so much, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Dave, for having me. And uh, before we go on, I just want to let you know that um, I am an employee of BMS, uh, but the views and comments I'm making today is off my own. Of course. Thank you so much. No worries. So um, I would love to start by uh, you know, having you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So Dave, um, I, like you mentioned earlier, I've been with BMS for 24 years. And so November 17, um, which is a couple of weeks ago, uh, I actually started my 25th year with BMS. So I've been here uh, quite a long time, a quarter of a century. <laughs> so it's a, a good place to be. And I feel like I'm really helping people um, with what I'm doing at Bristol Myers Squibb. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you have an amazing story um, to tell, Hong. And I'd love to hear you uh, tell us about your journey, your family's journey, really, from from uh, when you were a young, when you were a young person, and uh, coming here to the United States and all that, so uh, it's a great story. I, I would, I just would love to have you share that with uh, with our listeners. Absolutely, Dave, and it's a really interesting story. Um, my father was actually in the Democratic Air Force. Um, the day before the fall of Saigon, um, one of his friend, who's happened to be a GI, American GI. Uh, was telling him that the U.S. will be pulling out of Vietnam the next day. And he suggested that my father fly the families of the servicemen uh, to a base in the Philippines, a U.S. base in the Philippines, uh, because tomorrow is the last day that they will be there. So I remember that night my father came home and was having a conversation with my mother around 6 p.m. And um he, he soon left after that and told my mom that he'll be back in an hour. So my mom came to myself as well as to my sibling. And at that time, I was six years old. Uh, my brother, the oldest, was actually 10. And then my second oldest uh, brother was nine. And then my sister was eight. And so my mother told us to pack a bag, um, you know, grab our favorite stuffed animal. Um, you know, we're not coming back again. And so I thought we were actually on vacation uh, that we were going to be on vacation as a family because we're leaving as a family. So long story short, my father flew us to the base in the Philippines. 
he had to return to Vietnam to finish his mission. Uh, he said goodbye to my mother and did not know if he would ever going to see her again. And, you know, my mom was so brave to be um, in a different country with four small kids and not knowing, you know, how it's going to turn out. Um, so, you know, very, two, two very strong people that I look up to um, to this day, my parents. And the good news today was that, you know, since we were Catholic, um, we were sponsored through Catholic Charity. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Grant um, blessed our heart. They actually saw, um, you know, the plight of the refugees, uh, the Vietnamese um, on the news. Um, they really um, felt for us and they, they connected with their local church. And we were actually um, paired up with them. And um, they had a very, uh, um, you know, middle income kind of house. They had four children of their own. And so they went from a family of six to a family of 12 uh, within uh, one day. Um, and so we were really blessed to be able to come to the United States and have such a wonderful people to help us. Wow, that is amazing. And so you were six years old. And did, so did you, when did it hit you that you weren't going on vacation? Did it, did it ever hit you or are you too young to really process that? So it hit me when we came to the United States and my mother said, this is our new home. And I said, you know, I thought we were on vacation. She said, no, um, we can never go back to Vietnam. And she explained to us that if we went back, uh, our father would have been tried for uh, treason. And, uh, you know, he would have been put in jail or worst case scenario scenario, uh, would have been executed for uh, treason. And so, you know, Mom was very, she was very much like myself, a straight shooter. And so, you know, with that, um, we had an opportunity to start a life anew within the U.S. And I knew, you know, this was a good opportunity for her family. Yeah. And your mother was so strong, I imagine. And, and, and what was it like and, and how long did it take before your father came back when he had to go back to finish his duty? How long so was So it was that? interesting. Uh, we were on the base for, I think, a month or two. And then um, I think within um, the second month or maybe the first month, I can't remember because I, I was so young, my mom ran into one of his um, colleagues, um, I guess they served together, and she asked him, you know, have you seen my husband? And he, and he said, yes, your husband's on the base. But because of the chaos of people coming to the base and there was no way to register who's coming in, I mean, it was such a big base and there were so many people and finally, my mom did find my father and we were reunited and then uh, were able to come to U.S. as a family. So a lot of interesting things that happened within the, the first couple of months of leaving Vietnam. Wow. And your, your, your parents sound so brave and with four young kids uh, to look out for. My goodness. Um, and, and how grateful your family must have been when you were, when you were uh, connected with that, with that family. And that family was in, in, in Maryland, right? That's correct. They uh, they were in Maryland. Um, very grateful for the family. Um, we have kept in touch with them through the year, and they always been very um, supportive. Um, you know, after one year, uh, you know, with living in such tight quarter with twelve people, um, the grants found out that you know they could no longer support us, and so we were featured in the local newspaper. And uh, fortunately for us, uh, a young um, man. Uh, who was well off, um, was able to sponsor us. And he didn't have a wife. And so he was looking um, to give back. 
And so long story short, um, he actually was such a wonderful uh, person. We still, to this day, call him Uncle Lee. So uncle uh, is a term of endearment that you're part of the family. And so he's he's been a part of our family um, ever since. And he's still alive to this day. So uh, we do keep in contact with him. Uh, he actually retired to uh, Florida. Oh my gosh! So, so did you? Did your whole family like move in with into his home? Yes. So um, he actually was um, pretty well off. Um, so he had a, a big mansion over in northern Baltimore. So we were in the East Wing, and he was in the West Wing, basically. So he was able to uh, provide for us. Um, he gave us a Catholic uh, education. Um, each one of the kids had their own room. And so we're really fortunate to have him in our life and that, and, and to continue our journey uh, within the U.S. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story. And I, I wanted to make sure our listeners heard that story because I think it really, as you and I have gotten to know each other, I think it really informs the why of what you do and, and the direction that you're not only personally, but professionally, that, that direction that, you're, that, you've, that you've taken. And I think it was, there's, there's no... There's no greater uh, impact than the story that you just mentioned of, of the, you know, the fear I'm sure that your parents had, you know, and the uncertainty that, that they had, as well as the uncertainty that you had in your siblings as to where the future was. And that, you know, once you ended up in Maryland um, with these amazing people, you know, who really changed your entire life, right? Yes. And so then you ended up going to school in... Um, uh, in Maryland uh, at UMBC, right? And yes. we were joking earlier because um, uh, you know I know you you ended up getting a degree in you know uh, in, in economics, and I want you to share the story about you know telling your mom that you're you know I don't think I'm going to be a I don't think I'm going to ever be able to be a doctor. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely, Dave. <laughs> um, it's funny because you know um, your parents always have high expectation um, for yourself as you know as children we always follow our parents' uh, guidance and. Uh, she wanted me to be uh, either a, a doctor or a pharmacist. And I said to my mom, I said, you know, um, in actually having visited the doctor as a child and having blood work and so on and so forth, it, it just made me really queasy to, e- to e- either see a needle or to see blood. And uh, I, said to her, I said to her that I want to help people uh, and patients, but at the same time, I don't think I could be a doctor, not a good one anyway, because, you know, uh, fainting at the sight of blood or a needle would not be good for for anyone, especially the patients. <laughs> I had a similar experience because I was pre-med my first year. Um, yeah, right. There, I thought I was going to be pre-med my first year in college and uh, not so much because I have the same, I've got the same thing. I'm queasy and I, I don't like needles and, and all of that. So I, I think I would have been a great doctor temperament wise. I would have had great bedside manner. But I would have been I would not, I would, it would not have worked for me. So I can totally appreciate that. But so you, so you did spend a little time. Um, I think you mentioned you spent a very short career in the accounting world uh, before you ended up going into pharma. So what was that like, the, that first, that first experience in, in crunching numbers? So you know what's interesting today? Cause um, you know, economics, such a, a big degree that you could do anything with it. And so uh, one of my, um, one of my friends said, Hey, you know, do you want to, try accounting. I said, sure. So literally uh, for two months, I was crunching number and I, I was like, oh my God, I cannot be doing this for 25 years. I need to have interaction with people. And so I said to him, you know, I don't think this is going to work out. 
And so luckily for me, uh, one of my other friends was saying that uh, Bristol Myers Squibb is actually expanding um, their sales force. And uh, he said that you would be great for, um, you know, being a sales rep, you know, very personable, you know, you're very smart, intelligent. I think you do well. And as you can see, uh, almost 25 years later, I'm still with Bristol Myers Squibb. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be here. Yeah. And so you, when you made that transition to the, to the pharmaceutical um, industry, I'm sure that was that was a refreshing change from from crunching numbers. But um, so what was your what, what did you think at the time would be the sort of the direction of your career? Um, and uh, maybe not thinking that you're going to be there 24 years later, of course, but but here you are. Right. So yes. what is it about what it is about the uh, the work that you do and the uh interacting, I'm sure, with customers and things like that, that really, um, that, that really excites you and really uh, gives you joy in terms of being in the life sciences? Well, I think the one thing is that, um, you know, we have really breakthrough medication, uh, med- medicine, treatment, and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of time, um, you know, with the physician being so busy, um, they, not, they might not be not really, really well read about our products, you know, uh, the benefit the side effects, you know, whether the patient is a good fit or not. So I, I fit that need. Um, I try to help them uh, determine whether, you know, our drug would be the good fit for them. And since I've been here, I've been in uh, cardiovascular, I've been in virology, I've been in oncology. So there's a lot of different um, breakthrough in treatment in the different um, specialty that I, I actually serve. So the medication that we had really is a shifting of paradigm you know, where there was uh, no hope before, and now we're giving patient hope. So uh, with that, you know, I, I'm sort of helping uh, the patient along the way that my mom sees me helping the patient, but in a different capacity. Does, does she have a good understanding of that now? She does. Oh, good. She does. That's great. Because we all have a role to play, right? And and not everybody needs to be a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist, you know, to have an impact, right? And uh, although there's a lot of those amazing humans out there doing great work, there are people like you that are, that are also involved and have the similar uh, outlook towards patients. And that's one thing I always like to emphasize on my show is when I have uh, my friends from the pharmaceutical industry on my show, I want to make sure that it's really important to me that people understand that there are a lot of really good people who work in the pharma uh, industry and the role that they play, always having the patient in mind. And I, and, and I know that that's important to you and particularly given your, you know, your background and your why and, and, uh, you know, wanting to help people. I'm sure that you have, you have that sense of, of being connected to the patient, even if you're not directly treating patients, right? Absolutely. Um, Dave, I want to give you an example. When I was in virology, we actually had a treatment for hepatitis B and hepatitis B actually uh, affects mostly Asian so it's passed on from mother to child at birth. And unless you're vaccinated within the first 24 to 48 hours, you're actually carrying the virus and it's a cycle infection. So the mother again passes down to um, the child. So the thing about hepatitis B is that, um, you know, you live for four decades of your life and you probably won't have any symptom. And then it comes out as symptom the fourth or fifth decade. And, um, you know, there's no sense of urgency um, in terms that, because you don't have symptoms. And a lot of these Asian um, um, individuals are, are immigrants to U.S. Um, so there is a language barrier. They don't understand the disease. They don't have any symptom. 
They don't want to take a drug that they don't um, feel that there's any symptom. So long story short, um, by going out to health fair and having conversation with the physician and patient, I feel there's really a gap in the U.S. for the Asian patient, especially in liver cancer. Um, that actually is also transpired into clinical trials where if you're having a treatment for liver cancer, you should have enough Asian in the actual uh, uh, cancer trial to reflect that, hey, it is actually working and helping the Asian. Most clinical trials have less than 8% uh, minority, and this could be African-American, Latino, as well as Asian-American. So we need to do a better job in getting um, minorities um, into clinical trials so we can really say that, hey, you know, this drug or this treatment really works for this ethnic population. And that's what I really feel passionate about is that having enough information so a, a physician can make an informed decision. Right now for clinical trial, there's not enough information for African-American or Latino or Asian for them to truly make uh, an informed decision. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to the why of your background and, and wanting to help your own people. I think that's, that's something that's really important to you. Right? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said earlier, somebody helped us along the way uh, when we came to U.S. You know, we had great sponsors uh, through Catholic Charity. I had great friends who steered me um, to pharmaceutical. So I want to try to give back to um, to patient. I, I feel there is calling for me in giving back to the patient. And I feel this is the best way I can do it. See, I love that. Because I, 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 I feel the same way. And I sometimes feel like, well, I, you know, I'm just doing my my small part, but it, but I feel like giving back as well because I had a very positive experience and a good outcome from my from my cancer experience, as you know. So I, I can totally relate to this this sense of wanting to to give back. And you don't have to be you don't have to work at Catholic charities or work at a nonprofit, you know, to give back, right? You can do it through your work. How cool is yes. that, right? You can go to work every day feeling good about what you do, and your mom can feel good about what you do. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. It's a win win, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And actually, this is a good uh, uh, segue because I now you and I met, you know, with our uh, because of our uh, professionally, our, our mutual interest in uh, in a project called diversity in oncology, uh, which was a which is a collaboration between Grid Health and uh, BMS. Uh, and that brought us together, which I think was 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 really cool. And it's been it's been a real, it's been a real honor for me to get to know you and other members of, of the team that are committed to, to that project. I would love for you to, to share with, with us uh, sort of the background of, of how this came about. How did the diversity oncology, sort of, what do you see it as, as doing and how did it come about? Can you give us a little background on, on sort of the, the initial conversations around that and how it came to light? So it's interesting, uh, Dave, but, um, you know, that's a really good story because um, at that time, um, PBRG, which is the People Resource Business Group at uh, BMS, was really taking off. I think it was around 2000, 2018. I had a conversation with our lead, Jean Jang, and I said, you know, there's really a lot of work for us to do as a PBRG, PBRG group in PAN. I said the one thing that, um, you know, we spoke earlier about uh, liver cancer and, you know, having enough people in clinical trials. Uh, to reflect efficacy of that ethnic group, I said, there is something that, to be done here. And so through conversation with her and her having conversation with the other PBRG, um, the BOL, which is the African-American group, OLA, which is a Latino Hispanic group, 
and then Pan, um, which is our group. So we are affectionately known as BOP. <laughs> the BOP team uh, came together to have this uh, idea that, you know, we should really highlight the different uh, stakeholder in cancer care in uh, clinical trial, especially um, diversity uh, is really needed. So each session of um, the webinar is focused on a different stakeholder and their story and their journey and their their feelings about clinical trials. So the first session was actually around patient. And so we really had some really good uh, speakers on the, the panel talking about um, the trial and tribulation of them going through uh, cancer treatment clinical trial. And then, you know, things such as, uh, you know, inpatient language, you know, uh, having a uh, caregiver talk about just a simple um, aspect of parking or transportation and, and so on and so forth. So we want to make sure that, you know, people are hearing from the actual stakeholder as to some of the barriers that they are encountering uh, in terms of trying to get into clinical trial. And so that first session was really eye-opening. And so with that, we actually uh, put together some resources on diversity in oncology to help the patient. Uh, the second session was around diverse PI, which is a principal investigator. investigator. And then having them um, talk about their um, actual conversation with the patient or, uh, you know, why patients do not want to be in clinical trial or uh, just giving a, a feeling of why they're a minority and what's some of the hindrance for them to actually have clinical trial at their um, institution or a community hospital. So those two sessions really open up some dialogue that we're hoping to continue. And so the last two sessions, we're hoping to have um, some concrete solution as to how we can approach the situation. So in the future, that no one feels like they're left out uh, from being a potential candidate in clinical trials. Yeah, it's been a it's been it's been an honor for me to be part of that because I know a lot of the well, I know a couple of the patients that were on the first panel, and I know a couple of the PIs that were on the on the second panel <clears throat> who, who have you know, who have become friends of mine and I love them sharing their stories. And, and I love the fact that you're, you're hearing voices that sometimes are not heard. Right. And I think, yes. you know, having people share those lived experiences, you know, and, and we, we were seeking out, not just the same people, you know, we hear from a lot, right. Cause I know in my world in lung cancer, there, you know, there, there are certain voices that we hear from the same ones all the time. And sometimes it's really great and refreshing and, and honest and, and authentic to hear from other people who might not have had opportunities to share their voice, right? Absolutely. I think that at the end of the day, everybody wants to be seen, heard, and acknowledged. So we're really giving them the platform to be heard. And I think you're right, Dave. I think at the end of the day, it's good to hear different voices. Yeah, for sure. So it's really been, and I'm looking forward to the to the next couple of sessions as well, and and looking at the outcomes of what we can what we can achieve together. And when you talk about this internal conversation that you had, I, I, I'm also interested in knowing if you have had, uh, if you've had mentors and sponsors within, within BMS uh, that have helped you along the way. It's, it seems to be a common theme. Well, not seems to be, it is a common theme with everybody. I have a guest on my show is that they, there have been people, whether you're a scientist, you're an oncologist or whether you work in pharma, there, there have been people along the way in your journey and your career path that have had an influence on you on, on them. 
And I'm wondering if there are people that, that have helped you either as mentors or sponsors uh, that have really stood out to you in your career at BMS. So I, I can think of one person right at the top of my head is Jean Jang. Um, she works tirelessly um, for the underserved. Uh, she actually lead our PBRG PAN. And so she's been, she has been very vocal on the needs of the underserved. Um, so Asian um, minority within BMS as well as outside BMS. And so through her effort and through her mentorship, um, we have really gotten a, a lot accomplished at BMS to help the Asian population in general. So she is one person that I really look up to. And unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, either way you're looking at it, um, she is retiring. So I'm very oh. happy for her. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> December will be her last uh, month at BMS. And so she's moving on to the next chapter in her life. And I, I will always be grateful to her. Yeah. And again, it's it's insight to me that I love sharing with people that within pharmaceutical companies, there are these special people, right? Like you just mentioned, that have such an impact on others. And we talk a lot about diversity in clinical trials or diversity in, you know, getting treatment like Estella, you know, Rodriguez, Dr. Rodriguez talks about, you know, her work down in, in Miami about, you know, the challenge of trying to get, you know, more. Latina women in science and, and, and so that so that patients can be treated by someone who understands them, who lived their same experience, who speaks their language, who looks like them, right? And that's also true within pharmaceutical companies, right? It's not just that we, we I, it, there is diversity within uh, within the pharmaceutical world and it's and it's good to have that diversity so that people like you have a place, right and, and you can, and then I'm sure you can now turn around and help the younger generation of, of, uh, of young people who are, who are working within BMS True, right? Absolutely. You got to pay it forward, Dave. So any, any way I can give back, um, I want to. And like you said, mentor, mentorship as well as, um, you know, helping uh, individual get where they want to go. You know, that's, that's my goal. Yeah. Well, you're doing great work. So I really, I really, um, I'm honored to have you on the show and have you share that with us. And now I want to kind of speak to on the sort of the personal side of, of you know, I've, I've read this, and I'm, hopefully this is true, but I read that when you're not working, you can find me, you, this, is, this is you, you can find me traveling to see the views wherever they might be, riding your bicycle, playing golf with your friends, or indulging in great food and wines. So any of that, any and all of that true? It is true, Dave. Um, <laughs> one of my, uh, I think I started in 2007, um, I said to myself, you know, one of my bucket lists was to see the wondrous world. So I was fortunate to uh, see um, Machu Picchu, Easter Island, the, the pyramids, um, the Great Wall of China. And so um, I was able to do that uh, within the last 10 years. But, you know, with COVID and everything <laughs> is happening. So there is a, a pause on my travel, but I hope to uh, be able to start traveling again. And then food and wine, you know, life's too short. You got to be able to eat good food and drink good wine, Dave. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, the traveling, my wife and I were, we were, we had decided every five years we we're going to travel somewhere special for our anniversary. And so at our 25th, we went to London and then we were going to go in 2020 last year to the Amalfi Coast of Italy. Nice. And of course, what happened was Italy was like one of the hardest hit countries on the planet. So uh, bad timing, apparently. So yes. we, we also look forward to getting back, um, you know, to traveling. And 
as far as are, so are, are you an avid golfer or just a recreational golfer? So um, I would like to say that I'm an avid golfer. Um, I was never, I never took lesson. Uh, I maybe took one lesson. So for me to go out and just enjoy the fresh air and then having, um, you know, friends, um, you know, to be with and be around and just getting some exercise. That's the way I look at it is I'm getting exercise. And I think it's a, a sport you can play like well into your 70s. So um, I try to play um, on a regular basis with COVID. Um, I've been able to get out more now um, because of COVID just to be able to be outdoor and doing something exciting. Uh, I did want to mention that the bike riding, <laughs> I was not a serious bike uh, rider, um, but when I got to BMS, uh, one thing we were doing as a team in oncology was coast to coast for cancer. And so it was a uh, opportunity for us to give back to cancer research. So we were able to um, raise enough money. I think every year we we're able to raise a million dollars uh, to give back to, um, I think the first couple of years was staying up to cancer. And then the last two, three years we gave to the V Foundation for research. But it really is um, very taxing on your body. Uh, so you're training in 90 degrees heat. Uh, you have elevation of um, 2,000 to 5,000 that you're climbing. You're riding anywhere from 60 to 75 miles a day, 60 to 75 miles a day for three days. So we want to let, um, you know, the cancer patient know that, you know, it's hard work, you know, just like training uh, for a bike ride. It's hard work going through treatment and we feel your pain, basically. And so um, I was able to do coast to coast for cancer twice. And so I'll be honest with you, I'm hanging up my bike after the second ride. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is way too much. So I, I, I was I was fortunate to do it twice and I was happy I was able to do it. So where did you ride from? You started so from New the, Jersey, right? So the first ride was actually from Kansas City to Columbus, Ohio. So I, I have to tell you, it was pretty fat, uh, flat, the ride, but it was so windy, Dave. So you had these wind that was like in your face. And so um, you were riding against the wind, which was kind of hard. The second ride I did was uh, from Pittsburgh to Long Branch, New Jersey. And that's where we actually had elevation of 5,000. So literally, there was a, a, a ride where you turn the corner and it's straight up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had really good trainers. And half the time, they're pushing me up the hill because I have never experience, experienced elevation that high in such a short amount of time. So we had really good trainers, and they were, help, they were able to help us uh, with the rides. But you're hanging up the bike for no, no more of those long rides for you? No, Dave, just golf from now on. <laughs> oh, that's, that's more my pace. I have a friend who runs in the Pan Mass Challenge every year, which is from like Sturbridge to Provincetown in Massachusetts. It's like 125 miles. And um, I think it's relatively flat, but not totally because there are some hills in Central Mass. Uh, yes. But just the, just the training that goes into that and the commitment that people do, um, really appreciate that and really uh, have a... have. A great respect for people. I know one of your colleagues was talking about he he had done it. He had gone from the Pittsburgh to Long Branch yes. route, and I'm like, no way. There's no way I've driven that. I know how far that is. That's far. It is far. It is. But again, it shows the commitment of people like you and and your colleagues. And so, it's something that's really important to me. You know, I, I often say, 
as a as a lung cancer survivor and patient advocate that we are all in this together. And when I say that, that means all of us as advocates and and fellow survivors and warriors and caregivers and clinicians and pharma people, researchers, we are literally all in this together. And everybody has a has a role to play, and it's really important. And and no one is more important than than the next. And I feel like when we stay connected like that, there's you know there's nothing but good things that can happen. I always say we when you surround yourself with good things, good things with good people, good things happen. And I'm sure that you would share that uh, given your story. So thank you so much for for sharing your story with us. And um, and thank you again for all the great work that you do, Hong. It's really amazing to, to have you on the show. Thank you, Dave, for the opportunity. And uh, we will continue, you and I, to uh, do great work uh, with diversity in oncology. So I'm very excited for that. 100%. Thanks again. All right. Have a great day. 